Amen. Well, thanks so much for being here. Oh, yes, the good-looking lady over here. Scripture memory verse for next week is Matthew 12, 34b and 35. Matthew 12, 34b and 35. Yes. That's right. Next week we do not have Sunday school class, correct? It's Cantata Sunday. So in two weeks, the verse will be. You have two weeks, yes. All right, yeah, next week is cantata, so um, there is no adult uh, Sunday school classes or any Sunday school classes, actually, uh, except for the younger, younger crowd um, on cantata, cantata Sunday. So the week after that is the 15th, and that will be the um, class, what do you call that? Feeding frenzy? Uh, <laughs> Breakfast, uh, brunch, uh, thing that happens on, on uh, the 15th, and then the 15th and then the 22nd. We'll be meeting both 15th and the 22nd. I'm going to come to a great spot here in Matthew to kind of break uh, for those two weeks. And then so those two weeks, I will be bringing something, but it will be, prim be primarily related towards Christmas and just uh, focused in on Christmas and Christmas uh, the celebration. So... We'll, we'll be looking forward to those two weeks as well. i got to tell you one story. Since we were talking about little kids, Patty and I had the privilege of keeping two of our little grandsons on Friday night. Uh, their parents were out, our daughter, Christy, and they were, they were out. And so we kept uh, Gaines and, and uh, Beckett. Gaines is three. Beckett is about a year and a half. He just started walking and stuff. Anyway, little Gaines uh, was there, and so we had some eggnog left over. And I said, hey, Gaines, would you like some eggnog? Oh, no, 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 I, I don't like eggnog, no, don't like eggnog, no, no, no eggnog, no eggnog. About 10 minutes later, I said, hey, Gaines, would you like some Christmas milkshake? <laughs> oh, milkshake. So, fed him a little bit of that Christmas milkshake eggnog in disguise. He loved it. <clears throat> he loved it. You know, it really, it really gets down to marketing, doesn't it? Just on how you market it, you're fine. As long as you market it right, you're, you're going to uh, be just off and running. We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12, a pivot point, a pivot point in the book of Matthew. And so this makes it, Matthew 12 kind of comes to a climax. Uh, and then it starts a different section in the book of Matthew. So it's a great spot to kind of bring us to before the Christmas break, and then we'll pick up the last part of the book of Matthew uh, after Christmas into January. In Luke chapter 19, verse 44, and I'm going to switch uh, a book for just for that one verse so you don't have to go there. In Luke chapter 19, 44, as Jesus was coming in during the triumphal entry, he comes over the, comes over the hill and he begins to weep. And there's a place there that's uh, in Jerusalem. For those of you that have been there, it's Dominus Flavid. It's a place where Jesus wept. And it says in Luke chapter 19, 44, that he uh, 
weeps because, quote unquote, you did not recognize the time of my visitation. You did not recognize the time of my visitation in Luke chapter 19, 44. Jesus promises the nation, the kingdom, yet they reject God's provision. They reject God's promise. And you say they did not recognize the time that God was among them. They did not recognize that. And because of that, Jesus was in Luke chapter 19, 44, is in the triumphal entry, he was, he was weeping. And it's often, often, often thought through my things. Why, why did they miss it? Why did they miss it? And that's going to play into what we're going to be talking about in, in Matthew chapter 11 and 12 as to why they missed it. And there's a lot of reasons, but you know, just, just off the top of your head as you kind of, kind of think through it, what, what makes you think, you know, here they offer the kingdom, and they, the nation of Israel rejects the, the nation's, uh, the offer of the kingdom of heaven. They reject Jesus. Jesus then, in the triumphal entry, he weeps because they did not recognize the time of his visitation. Why do you think that was so? Give me, give me, just give me some feedback here. Why, why do you think it, it, they missed it? They missed it, why? Why do you think they missed it? comfortable in their sin all right yeah absolutely we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about that what are some of the other reasons yeah the what stiff-necked people i don't know anybody like that (laughs) Uh, stiff-necked people comfortable in their sin yeah Marketing. Marketing. <laughs> I think he was presented one way, and that's what they were expecting, but it was actually coming another way. So it was presented to them, marketed to them in a way that was... All right. Some of the teaching, maybe by the Pharisees, was predicting a, a, a particular way. And even John the Baptist, in some respects, as we see in, in, the, in the first part of Matthew chapter 11, was a little bit confused as to, are you the one? Now, he was under a lot of stress at that point. But I think, yeah, absolutely. Maybe some of the quote-unquote marketing was uh, by, by the Pharisees was maybe a little bit off. Yes? I don't think they were expecting to be led to glory by a carpenter's son. Okay. I think that they were looking for King David. Yeah. They were looking for, they were looking for somebody different. They were looking for a political leader that was going to uh, be able to uh, lead them out of the the turmoil that they were experiencing. And so Jesus, this suffering servant uh, that they were, they were looking at, just did not seem to fit the profile of what they were, what they were expecting. Other, anything else that kind of comes along off your mind? Yes, ma'am. I think they were too busy being good. Too busy being good. Yeah, under their own definition. Too busy being good under their own definition of what that was going to be as being good. Yes, I think it was the fulfillment of God's plan. All right. Absolutely. God's sovereign, fulfillment of the whole thing. You knew, you, you, was a genuine offer, but also God knows exactly what was going to happen and how they would reject, reject him in the, in, the, in the time. Yeah, there's a number of different reasons. I'm going to suggest a couple here when we, when we get into it uh, a little bit more. I, 
and they're all kind of revolving around the same thing as to what's going to, what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12. And I'm, I'm going to put it into two categories, and here are the two categories, and I'm going to come back to the two categories. Then we're going to apply the two categories, but here's the two categories. The two categories, really, selfish indifference and religious pride. Selfish indifference and religious pride. And you begin to see over and over at least those two categories. Now there's a lot of different, obviously, a lot of different things. They didn't really know and understand their scriptures as, as was brought out. Uh, they were expecting somebody different. They wanted to do their own thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But right here in Matthew chapter 11, I see, think we see a couple of examples of selfish indifference, chapter 11, and religious pride in chapter 12. Now remember, Matthew's writing to prove to the Jewish readers that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That's the reason that, Jesus, that Matthew was writing. Matthew first introduced the king of the Jews in the first part, and then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount really describes what it is to be people of the kingdom. And he says that People of the kingdom are distinctively different and are to live a distinctively different lifestyle. And he describes, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and so Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount gives them an expectation of what it means to really be people of the kingdom. Totally different lifestyle than what they've, they've, they've really heard. He then authenticates after that, he authenticates the message and the messenger. Remember, miracles and signs and wonders authenticates both the message, hey, I am the Messiah, and the messenger, I am, he, I am he. And whoop, we have miracles which authenticate the message and the messenger. Jesus then, as he was traveling around, saw that his, there were people with great needs, great needs, so he sees the needs of the people, and so then he sends his disciples out to spread the message, the good news about the message of the kingdom. And as he does that, he says to them, take nothing. Take nothing. In other words, be totally dependent upon me. Not only for your livelihood, not only for your stuff, but also for the message, what's going to happen through the message, be totally dependent upon me. Take nothing. And you know, that's, that dependence thing is really very easy to do if you're really familiar with the object of your dependence, isn't it? If you really know God and you're really secure, secure in your relationship with him, being dependent upon him really then at that point becomes a lot easier. It's when you become a little wishy-washy as far as where we are on that, and we think that we can know better than the person that we're putting our faith and trust in, then now we become a little bit more insecure in all of that. It says, take nothing. Well, chapter 11 then, if you look at your Bible, Matthew chapter 11, begins with our little transition phrase, when Jesus had finished giving instructions, and so meaning that we're moving from that teaching section, which was right before, into a narrative section. And in this narrative section, in chapter 11 and 12, what's happening is 
the rise of opposition towards Jesus. The rise of opposition towards Jesus. To a place where Jesus now begins to recognize, and he does recognize, the postponement of the kingdom until a later time. And he'll switch in chapter 13 towards being teaching in parables. So the next teaching section in chapter 13 really is teaching in parables because now Jesus begins to switch as he begins to prepare his disciples. So this point, 11 and 12, is really a turning point, a pivot in the book. It, and these chapters are kind of held together by that, that rising disappointment in what they were expecting the Savior to look like and now their opposition towards Jesus. But why the opposition? Well, I think really in first chapter 11, what we see is really what I call selfish indifference. The first 19 verses of chapter 11 really deal with John the Baptist. And they were asked a question by John, John the Baptist. He says, uh, you know, John verse 2, while in prison heard the works of Christ and sent word to his disciples and said, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And I think John at this point was, was really wondering as to, hey, we were taught, we were looking for a political type of leader. Are you the expected one? And Jesus answered and said, go and report what you've seen. You've seen me authenticate both the message and the messenger. In other words, in his reply to John, he's basically saying, I am the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Look. Look at what's happening. Go back to Isaiah chapter 35. Go back to Isaiah chapter 61. Go back to Isaiah 26 and 29. Read those passages. And then look. I am fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies. And then, really interesting, verse 7. As the men were going away, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds about John. And I don't think that that was by, by, by accident there. I think that as John's disciples were going away, you know, the, they got Jesus' answer. Tell John this. And so they, they begin to walk away. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and says, let me tell you about John. And I think those disciples, as they were walking away, they, they kind of they stopped. They said, What's he saying about John? Jesus begins to commend John for his ministry, which really, I think, bolsters John's disciples even more and recognizing who John really was. John was a prophet. He's a prophet, and, and Jesus affirms that. He says, yeah, he fulfills the prophecies that were there as a forerunner. John... John is one of the greatest. You know, the disciples of John probably heard that and said, wow, wow, how cool is that? But then it gets down to verse 16, and this is where I want to kind of stop in this section. Verse 16, it really the dissatisfaction that the people were showing, showing to both John and to Jesus. Look at what it says, verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played a flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking. They say, 
He is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He said, you know, basically what he's saying is, that, you know, this nation of Israel is just like children. You can't please them. You just can't please them. I mean, we, we'll play a wedding you don't want to play. We'll play a funeral you don't want to play. Basically kind of giving bookends to everything in between. You're not happy with anything. You're not happy when, you know, John comes and he doesn't eat and drink. You're not happy with Jesus when he does and he does eat and drink with sinners. You're not happy with either one. You're just like children. We can't please you. And then this last sentence down here, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Remember the, remember the story of Forrest Gump? Yeah, everybody remembers Forrest Gump, right? You know, life's like a box of chocolates, you know, and the thing. But remember that one statement that he kept saying, stupid is as stupid does? Stupid is as stupid does. And what mama was telling the forest, as stupid is as stupid does. Now you, you may not be the smartest, you know, lightest bottle in the waddle or whatever, you know, the sharpest pencil in the box, Forrest. But stupid is as stupid does. And, but you're doing all of the right stuff, Forrest. And then you have this, this movie, Unplaying, of a bunch of people that are quote-unquote sharper than Forrest doing dumb stuff, right? The whole movie is full of all the other people doing dumb stuff. Stupid is as stupid does. Biblical is as biblical does. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus says, hey, Look at what's happened here. The message and the messenger has both been authenticated. We're not going to be able to please everybody. It's just like a bunch of children. We can't please you if we do this. We can't please you if you do that. You, you can't be pleased either way. And then, then, verse 20, he begins to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And look at what he says to him. <coughs> Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, by the way, there's a little underlying principle here that's going on. The greater the revelation, the greater the accountability. Keep that in mind. The greater the revelation, the greater the accountability. And so there's a little bit of an underlying play that's going on here uh, of what's going on. And then he says, nevertheless, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable in Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Then he singles out Capernaum. And you, verse 23, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it could have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than it is for you. 
What, what happened here? What happened here? Corazine, well, I'm just going to take Corazine because it's the first one that's mentioned, and I could talk about all three of these. Corazine is a really interesting little town. It's north of Capernaum by about three kilometers up the hill, and it's kind of nestled, nestled in, in amongst the little hills. Now, what they were up there for is primarily wheat products. They had a lot of wheat on those hills. It was very fertile. Wheat, but also bread, wheat and bread. That was really their commodity. So they most likely, they would probably trade fish with Capernaum for bread from Chorazine. But Jesus, in this little triangle between Bethsaida, Chorazine, and Capernaum, that little triangle, that's where Jesus spent most of his ministry. And that northern part up there was Chorazine. And Chorazine, nifty little town, it had a nice synagogue. And he realized that, all right, these people were hardworking, growing wheat, doing grinding of the wheat, making bread, probably using that as a trade, trade vessel for the other towns because that's where they were, they were able to do it. But they were probably not totally rich or opulent. You don't see any rich opulence up there. What you see is, is tiny balls, you know, rock that houses and things of that nature. But the synagogue was, was relatively nice. Now, by the time you get to the fourth and fifth century in the synagogue, you begin to see some syncretism kind of meshing in. Because what you see in the synagogue and part of the, part of the ruins that were there was a Medusa. And you say, what in the world is a Medusa doing in a Jewish synagogue? You say, whoa, probably a little bit of compromise kind of began to creep in, probably pretty early on. Little compromise, little bit of this, little bit of that. They probably had to give a lot of money to build that synagogue, but they also then began to accept everything that they wanted to accept. In other words, uh, it's a little bit more convenient for us to begin to compromise a little bit here, and we want it to be comfortable for us. Jesus, he comes up, and he begins to do a lot of his miracles there. He heals people. What was their response? Hey, we like having you around, Jesus, to heal the people. But, you know, we don't want to take this too far. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to take it to a place where it maybe has to alter our lifestyle any. You know, we want to keep it into a comfortable range here. You start talking about, you know, following and becoming disciples and preaching the gospel. Wait a second here. That maybe is a little bit too much. And so they begin to, a little bit of compromise here, a little bit of compromise there. Pretty soon a little bit of syncretism kind of meshes in and you end up by the fourth century third and fourth century, you end up with a Medusa in the synagogue. 
What's with that? Selfish indifference. Selfish indifference. I want it to be comfortable for me. You know, it's, it's kind of tough to live the spiritual life in a believer's world. Kind of tough to live the spiritual life, be obedient to Scripture. Because, you know, we want to take Scripture and make it say what we want it to say. We want to take it and make it comfortable to what we want to, we want to see it say to us. Well, this is really what it means to me. Without really going back. And then you say, well, I don't see any problem. Well, go back and read the Sermon on the Mount. You know, where Jesus said, hey, let me tell you what it really means to be a person of the kingdom. It's talking about being anxious for nothing, but in everything. You know, pray without ceasing in other parts of Scripture. Uh, do not be worried about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries for itself. I'm talking about dependence and things of that nature. And you say, well, we start doing what the, I had some professors say, the motorboat syndrome. But, 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 but. Selfish indifference. And I think Corazine, they gave everything they had, but they welcomed everything that they wanted. They began to kind of compromise, and Jesus calls them out. He says, woe to you, Corazine. Woe to you. For if the miracles which occurred in you to repent in Tyra, they would, have, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, they saw what you could, they would have been able to see what you could do. They would have believed. But you, you were more focused on self than you were on following me. You were more focused on your own comfortableness than focused on following me. Well, Jesus then begins to invite the people and he kind of turns at the same time, verse 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you've hidden these things to the wise and intelligent, revealed them to infants, i.e., for the infant is truly dependent. Yes, Father, for in this way is well-pleasing to your sight. All things have been handed over to me. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Then in verse 28, there's a definite break here. There's a break here because there's a change in the Lord's message. Because the Lord's message up until the, this point was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now Jesus now switches to the individual. He makes the invitation to the individual. And he says, come to me. Come to me personally. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, I think the nation missed it first due to selfish indifference. They said, we're really focused more upon self than we are upon God. Self becomes the priority. God becomes second. 
And you miss God's best for your life. And you miss God's best for your life. And that's exactly what happened. They missed God's best because they were focused on self. But secondly, then in chapter 12, it switches a little bit because now we go from selfish ambitious ambition to and selfish indifference to religious pride because now Jesus gets into it with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees begin to challenge him. And Jesus takes on that religious pride. And that religious pride is those things that, you know, well, I've always done it this way. You know, I think I... You know, this is the way that we were always taught. This is the way that we were always did things. This is the way, this is the way it's done. You know, this is the way you do things. And Jesus begins to take them on. And in chapter 12, that's exactly what happens. And in verses 1 through 8, you contention, the contention of the Pharisees on things that you're supposed to eat during the Sabbath. And then verses 9 through 21, the contention over helping others in the Sabbath. But then verse 22, which is really where I want to start here in chapter, 20, chapter 12, verse 22, the contention over Jesus' power. So the first part is just what you can eat and what you can do during the Sabbath, and Jesus takes that on because he's, he's just facing the law. And what he says in those sections is, hey, look, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. But now, verse 22. I love this section. Verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed them so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now, we pass by verse 22 really quickly, but think about that for a second. Think about that. Who brought it? Probably the Pharisees. And who did they bring? They brought a blind and mute man. In other words, this guy can't see and he can't hear. And so the Pharisees are probably sitting there going, we got him. He's not going to be able to do this. Because this guy can't see and he can't hear. So we're going to bring this guy to him. And Jesus isn't going to be able to show him anything. He's not going to be able to communicate with him. Blind and mute, he's not going to be able to, and all it says is they brought a blind and mute man to him and Jesus healed him. An impossibility from a human perspective possible with God. Impossible from our standpoint possible with God. Blind, mute, he's not going to be able to do anything. And then Jesus heals him. That's all it says. I love that. You know, just that one little section in there. And you think about it, you go, whoa, how cool is that? You don't know how, we don't know how exactly he did. He probably just said, just with a word, you are healed. And he was healed. But then the, the Pharisees, they basically attribute that to Satan. Jesus, in verses 20, 25 through 29, basically makes note that it makes no sense for a demonic force to cast out demons. I mean, that makes no sense at all. 
So you're attributing to Satan. That makes no sense for me to do that if I was really a Satan. That makes no sense. But then, in verses 30 through 32, comes this interesting section, which is often, often uh, uh, mis misread, 30 through 32. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather, gather me scatters. Therefore I say to you, verse 31, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Whoa, what does that mean? Does that mean that if I say bad things against the Holy Spirit, I can never be forgiven? A lot of people that think that. A lot of people think that. Let me just tell you my way of handling this. He's following up basically on the impossibility of being neutral here, that you've just attributed my works that I have done to satanic power. It's impossible. You're either, you're either for me or you're either against me. Now, the sin that cannot be that you can't is unbelief. I mean, that's, that's, that's unbelief. If you are not going to believe, there's nothing more, nothing more I can do. I think that this sin against the Holy Spirit can only be recreated if Jesus was there, i.e., Jesus just performed a miracle, which was done under the power of the Holy Spirit, if you reject that miracle that was just done under the Holy Spirit, basically saying that this is attributed towards satanic forces, there's nothing more that I'm going to be able to give to you. I'm not, there's nothing more I'm going to be able to show to you. You've basically rejected me. You've rejected the Holy Spirit through the works that I've just done. There's nothing more I can do. Blasphemy against the Spirit now, you know, really becomes unbelief. And at that point... I have nothing more for you, more to offer. Can it be recreated today? I don't think it can be recreated today. Uh, one would have to have Jesus present at that particular point, present and performing the miracles, observing his works, and then attributing those works to Satan, i.e. to be able to have that. The unforgivable sin at any time is rejection and unbelief in Jesus. That's the... That's the, that's the rejection at any particular time. Yes, sir. I, I hate to interrupt you, but the, the Lord works in mysterious ways, and your uh, teaching today is so right on. Uh, the American Music Awards had uh, their program the other day, and there's this girl that's a singer called Billy Alicia, and she's a popular satanic singer who won two awards, which is very, very scary. So... How much does this apply today to what you're talking about, about what happened so long ago? Her lyrics are very satanic and very devil-worshipping. Uh, she has very bad songs about young ladies and what's going on there and with the satanic stuff that you're talking about now. And, I mean, this hit me yesterday, and I wasn't sure what I should do with it. But I just want to make sure that the grandparents and parents in here beware of this singer that won these two Academy Awards because she's uh, such satanic uh, beliefs and stuff like that. And to see that our society has given her two awards is very, very scary. Sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we shouldn't uh, obviously support that type of stuff. The thing that I think is really being taught here is that the unforgivable sin at any time is rejection and unbelief in Jesus Christ. And just keep, keep going back towards Jesus Christ, pointing them towards Christ at, the, at, at that particular time. And I think that what's happening here is, yeah, the only thing that can be repeated is that one would have to have Jesus physically present, performing works, Jesus then confirming, authenticating his words and his works through the miracles. They are rejecting at that point, that particular time, and uh, he doesn't have anything more to offer. Rejection and unbelief in Jesus Christ really becomes a thing. Yes, ma'am. Children and grandchildren, because sometimes they just won't listen to us. You start talking to them, and then they just shut you out. So I just request prayer for all of our children and grandchildren. Amen. Amen. Continue to pray for those that uh, do not know Jesus, that they would come, come to know the Lord. It goes on, the Pharisees continued to ask for a sign, the sign from heaven. Obviously, they wanted some sort of sign that did not originate from Jesus himself is the sign that they were looking for, something other than that. Jesus then says, hey, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah, i.e. resurrection from the dead. And by the way, he makes the comment there between Jonah and also the queen from the south making the, the, the reference, which really gives, i.e., biblical basis of Jesus recognizing not only the authenticity of the Queen of the South, but also authenticity to Jonah as well. And so uh, people say, well, Jonah was just a myth. Well, you can go back to Jesus making numerous comments about, hey, Jesus basically confirms and authenticates Jonah in a variety of different places, and this is, this is one of them. But notice also he talks about one's relationship to Jesus in the last, the last part. While he was speaking, verse 46, still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, behold, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. By the way, um, mothers and brothers, brothers were obviously uh, physical half-brothers, sons of Mary. And uh, somebody's got to deal with that one. But Jesus answered the one who said to him, who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mothers and brothers. In other words, the disciples became his adopted spiritual family. And at that point, the spiritual relationships take precedence over the physical relationships. And you realize, I am making a choice here. That's not to, not to say I, I don't love my mothers and brothers. It's just that I'm making a choice here. I am choosing these are my mothers, my mothers and brothers. Behold, my mothers and brothers, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, verse 50 really sums up, really sums up the whole chapter, doesn't it? For whoever does the will of my Father. You see, we were saying before, when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, the people of the kingdom are to live distinctively different lives. And that's what Jesus was saying. People of the kingdom are to live distinctively different lives. But here now he begins to say, followers of Jesus will do the will of the Father. Followers of Jesus 
my mother, my brothers and sisters will do the will of the fathers, not their own will. Not their own will. Not out of selfish indifference. Not out of religious pride. Not their own will. Followers of Jesus will do the will of the Father. In other words, they will be obedient to Scripture. They will follow Him, not themselves. And 11 and 12 really comes down and summarized really very nicely in verse 50. What are some of the examples of selfish indifference that we have? Doing things for self, focus on self. Self becomes a priority rather than God. What's some of the examples of religious pride today? Well, that's where religion becomes a priority. Making sure that we do things according to this or that rather than coming back to Scripture. We, 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 we do that. It has nothing to do with Religion, Jesus says, but it has everything to do with a relationship with me. What's the answer to that? The answer to the opposition is faith and trust and dependence upon Jesus. Notice, notice very clearly here that none of the opposition was external stuff that was happening to people all of the opposition was internal as to how they reacted. Whether or not they were going to react in faith and trust and belief, or whether or not they were going to react by shaking their fists at Jesus Christ. And you realize, yeah, it's usually not that external stuff. It's not that external stuff that caused their unbelief. It was the internal reality of their heart that caused the unbelief. Because they have all of the stuff around them. They had the authentication of the message and the messenger that was going on all around them. And you say, well, if I just had a miracle, if I just had a miracle, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You've got God's word. You've got God's word. See, it's not the external stuff. It's the inward attitude of the heart. And that's where Jesus goes goes to the inward attitude of the heart. You know, as we come into this Christmas season, that plays out as well. What are you thankful for? It's one of, the, one of the things. What are you thankful for? But now as we come into the Christmas season, you know, we can get distracted by all of the glitz and the glimmer and the gizmos and gadgets and everything else that goes along, you know. We can get distracted by all that external stuff. But it really does all focus down to the internal reality of our heart as we begin to worship. We begin to worship the king. What more could God have done during this Christmas season? To light up the skies, to have angels come to announce the birth of his son. What more could he have done? What more could he have written down for us then he's not already written. You realize, yeah, I can either take this time and just pass it by or really take it to heart and worship during this season. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the many, many lessons that are found in this, this word. 
And Father, may we take those lessons to our heart. The opposition, really selfish indifference, religious pride is still so much a part of everything that's around us. Father, may we respond in belief and faith and trust and dependence upon you. May it not be our will, but your will be done. Mold us, shape us, and conform us to your image. May everything that we do and say truly bring honor and glory to you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the difference that you've made in our lives. May we be faithful to just proclaim that good news about Jesus Christ to people around us. Thank you for everyone here. Richly bless them this week as we prepare for the cantata, as we sing glory to you next week. May you receive the honor and the praise. For we pray these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.